Welcome to the Team of a Lifetime show. I'm Sally Love, your host. My expert guests and I tackle the tough challenges leaders and teams have to overcome to be successful. If you want insight, powerful strategies, and inspiration to lead effectively, build a rewarding team culture, and deliver results that other people don't believe are even possible, then this podcast is for you. Let's get started. Today's guest is Senior Vice President of Capital Projects Lithium at Albemarle Corporation. He has over 18 years experience in the execution of major capital projects and management of global project teams. Prior to working in the industrial sector, he served in the U.S. Army, where he received the Bronze Star for Combat Leadership in Baghdad, Iraq, and the Louisiana Emergency Service Medal for Operational Support during Hurricane Katrina. He was also my guest in episode two, and I'm excited that he's returning to the show today to talk specifically about leadership in building high-performing teams. He's a strategic thinker, a servant leader, and he's my great friend, Josh Rowan. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for having me, Sally. I appreciate it. You and I have talked a lot about major capital projects and how some are successful and some are not so successful. And I think the statistic is that 60% of all major projects fail. And a lot of leaders are shaped by working on projects that didn't exactly turn out like they had planned. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, you're right. Statistically, um, only 40% of projects are successful. And it tends to be when you're leading a major project that doesn't go well, um, it's not usually professionally beneficial to have been the person that led that. So the odds are long on, on doing a big project well, but it can be done. And I would say that part of it is there are documented reasons why the 60% fail. And so as a leader, part of it is learning what didn't go well and really going to school on that and figuring out how do you make sure that you're in the 40%. When you lead a big project, you have to believe you can land in the 40% or else you sort of doomed from the start. Usually you don't take someone who's never led any project and give them a, a mega project to start with. That's usually not the way that it works. Usually you, you do that after a series of, of other roles that you've had, you know, project management roles or corporate roles. And along the way, projects will not go the way that you think they're going to go. So you learn from each of those experiences on what didn't go well and what would you do differently next time. And it really takes a lot of humility to think about what what didn't work well in a project and to move past the idea that if only I fixed this one thing, that would make all the projects successful all the time. You know, rarely is it ever one singular thing that torpedoes a project. Usually it's a series of things that combine together to sort of really knock the project over. So I would say it's about being humble as a leader, learning you know, what didn't go well on some of the projects and really applying those lessons learned when you have your shot at leading um, a major project. In addition to really observing and learning what didn't go well, how do you coach and encourage someone that you're leading when maybe they're dealing with a difficult project or a difficult team? Yeah, that's another good question. Maybe the first comment I'd make, you know, I was sitting down at dinner with someone who works as part of my team and they had a situation where they inherited a team that wasn't performing well at all, not trusted or liked by the business, not customer centric. And he looked at me and he said, I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have accepted this job. 
And, uh, and I kind of looked at him and I said, well, to be fair, if I knew then what I know now, I probably wouldn't accepted my job either. So I think that's okay. <laughs> okay that we're being honest. But I, I said, you know, if you think about it, think about all the, the, the toughness and the resilience that you've developed as a leader through this series of difficult things that you've had to do. That sort of experience is not just beneficial for the role that you're doing now, but senior roles in companies. My just observing you know, senior leaders of companies for quite some time, the ones that I think do it really well tend to be even keeled. They don't panic. They, they, they know how to navigate and encourage and motivate people through a difficult situation. The ones that, that tend to not work out or tend to have less, I think, positive business results are the ones that sort of panic at the first sign of trouble. And so having to go through difficult times as a leader, difficult assignments as a leader, really actually prepares you, I think, to be able to have that steady hand that people are looking for when, when things happen, and whether you know, things geopolitically or things in the, you know, in the economy or things within the company or, or other surprises. People are looking for that steady hand and you get that steady hand by having to go through difficult experiences. Having people on your team that are working through that I think listening is important, genuinely listening. Sometimes they just need to get some things off their mind. They just need to to speak about them and just air things. Sometimes it's listening because they're looking for an answer. Uh, Hey, how how would you do this? Sometimes listening because they need support. They need something, resources, or they need something, something else to help make their projects or their project team successful. So I think A, it really starts from the place of listening and trying to, to empathize with what they're going through. And, then, and then I, I think the other important piece of it is to recognize that they are human and I'm human and they're going to make mistakes and I'm going to make mistakes. We've got to be comfortable allowing people sometimes to make a mistake. And I know that's very awkward. You don't, you don't want to, it's like your kids, you never want them to fail, but sometimes they will fail and they'll make a mistake. But that's an important part of learning and developing as a leader, even if they won't get it 100% right all the time. Yeah, and what I've seen too, you were talking about uh, consistency in leadership. Team members really do rely on their leader being consistent, having a consistent reaction. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, my boss said something the other day and it really struck me as a great way of thinking about it, that one of the jobs of a leader is to be a calm and stabilizing force when things are happening around them, which which aren't pleasant, and to not panic. Uh, It doesn't mean you ignore the situation, but you Accept the fact that people are looking for a calming force. You don't need people to create a more chaotic situation than what happens. And the flip side of that is your job as a leader is when the team gets very complacent to challenge them. You know, what are the things that we're not thinking about? What are the risks on the project that could get us that we're not managing or we haven't thought about that are out there? So the leader then almost has to sort of be in an opposite place as the team, if you think about it. And so that's really it's a challenge as a leader. You know, on any given day, I probably have to be the opposite of my team. So my team is is very stressed out and panicked, and there's a lot of things going on. I've got to sort. I've got to find a way to just keep being stable through all of it, uh, and not overreact. And if my team is sort of coasting along and things are going great and everybody's high fiving each other, I need to introduce some sense of how do we challenge ourselves? What's out there that we're really not thinking about? So it, you know, the leader then kind of kind of then takes on the the contrarian point of view, I guess, than the than the team. So. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. It's, it's kind of like balancing the scales. It is. That's a good, maybe that's an even better way of describing it. You've got to be the one that tips the scales to balance it back out again. You've got to sort of put your hand on the scale and say, let's have a balanced approach here. That's a great, great analogy. How 
big of an impact do you think mindset and attitude is to building a high-performing team? I think it's everything. I've, I've had people ask me before, would you rather have somebody who's really talented or someone who works hard and is a team player? And I will pick the work hard and team player person any day of the week. Certainly there are projects where even we have some today where just incredibly talented people, really smart people, um, people who are a load smarter than me, but they're not team players. They don't have the right attitude. They don't, they're not being consistent and operating in a way that's consistent with our value system. And that just doesn't work. It never works. I don't care how smart the person is. If, if they can't get that other piece right, it's very hard for them to exist within a project's organization. You know, could they go and do something that's not project centric? Um, maybe. But from a capital project perspective, if you don't have the right attitude, the right mentality, there's really not much place for you on a, on a capital project team. You think about the challenge of doing a project, it's that no one person does anything all the way through. Although you may have a, you know, someone that's doing a civil structural design on the project, that civil structural design then has to be used by someone who's going to put you know, steel beams on there. And then that has to be used by somebody else who's going to put mechanical equipment and then someone in piping has to take the piping and connect it. And then once it's all done, then somebody has to take it and actually go buy the stuff and build it. So there's this interconnectedness all the way through the organization where even though someone's working on a piece of it, it actually impacts a whole number of people and vice versa. I and mean, if you take it from the other side, the person who's going to do the construction of it has to rely on getting something that they can actually go use, something that's right. Because if, if it comes to them and they can't use it to go, construct that piece of the job, it doesn't help them. And then they have to fix it when they're out there. So by design, project will succeed or fail on how well the interactions and the interdependencies are actually working. Without that interconnectedness, it won't work. Speaking of this interconnectedness, when you are evaluating which engineering firm or which contractor or subcontractor to retain for a project, what kind of things are you looking for to see if they're going to be a good fit? Yeah, that's an outstanding question. I will tell you the one thing that matters to me, and I said this to a number of people recently, thinking about some projects coming up. I'm not as interested in the name on the door, the company name, as I am in the team that's going to work on the project. And so I've had people sort of be surprised sometimes when I actually want to interview the individual people that are going to be put forward by the contractor. And, and although they're, they're going to work for us as our partner, um, it's important to me that they, they are a good fit for our team and our team is a good fit for them. If the teams are not going to work well together, then, then we need to find the right people that are going to do that. I'd say, so I'd say that the people matter to me more than just the name on the door. And how well has the team from the contractor worked together before? So you know, any team, owner team, contractor team, goes through a period where they have to learn how to work together. And so if, you, if you're doing a project where everyone is coming together for the first time, that presents a sort of a unique set of challenges because they, haven't, they don't come with a working, a ways of working already. They may all work for the same company, kind of quote unquote, but they won't have worked together before. And so there's going to be that period on your project where they're going to have to learn how to work together. And sometimes they learn that and sometimes they don't. So if, if, if someone brings a team that has worked together before, that's a huge advantage in my eyes because that's, it's less of a, a process they're going to have to go through. Certainly, 
maybe not everybody, but the key leadership roles, I think, are essential that they've worked together before. I would say the third criteria for me is making sure that we find someone that is adaptable to working with us. I tend to have a hard time with the companies that sort of pull something out of a box and say, hey, this is this is the thing we use all the time and you either take all of this and use it or, not, or it's not going to work. I found that the ones that are a little more customer centric sort of say, hey, this is the range of things that we've got, uh, systems and tools and processes and all these things. But let's figure out how we make that work with the way in which your company and your project team likes to operate. That to me resonates a lot more than just, hey, let me pull something out of a box and give it to you and say, that's how we have to go do it. So it's about being adaptable. Maybe one more. I like a contractor team that's willing to challenge us. I don't really want to hire a contract team that's just sort of a bunch of yes people. Inevitably, there will be conflict. And that means every now and again, they're going to remind us that we as the owner don't have all the answers. And we as the owner need to be humble and say, you know what, you're probably right. We don't have all the answers. Let's think about this. One way that I test that out when I'm trying to figure out which contractors are the right right ones, I tend to ask for a lot of lessons learned and case studies. Um, because I don't, it's one thing to come and sort of get the canned presentation. Hey, this is how we do it at company X. That's good. Probably a good place to start. But I'm much more interested in hearing about, give me a project where you thought you did this well. And what did that look like? And let's talk about specifics. Because I learn a lot from case studies and thinking about how does it work practically? It's one thing to say all this in the theoretical, but where have you done it? And where did it work well? And how can we then take a similar approach on this project? So. That's what I look for when I'm trying to find the right contracting partner. So let's say that you believe that you have selected the right contracting partner. They've told you that they work very collaboratively with the other stakeholders, but they get started and you see that they're pretty adversarial. Then how do you deal with that? How have you dealt with that in the past? I'm a big fan of giving people second chances. So if you if you start off on the wrong foot, I think part of it is as obvious as it sounds is just acknowledging that you're off on the wrong foot. Too many times I think experiences, we just sort of look the other way or say, well, okay, this isn't really working, but I, I don't want to be the one to, to say something about it. Let it keep going. It'll get better. But it, it never gets better. Uh, it gets worse. And so I think part of it is if, it, if you feel like it's going in the wrong direction, in the spirit of being transparent, you have to acknowledge this isn't working. And bring people together and really talk through why is this not working and then just see if you can reset and you need to do it quickly. Letting it go is not going to help. It just makes the problem bigger and harder to solve in the end. And you'd like to believe that it works out all the time. You'd like to believe, hey, if I can get people in a room and I can I can level with people and we can make it work. And sometimes it's a case of individual people. Um, that's why I say it's not about the name on the door. You know, Sometimes it's not a, hey, the, the whole partnership is bad you may identify, look, there's a couple of people that are really, they're good people probably, but they're just not a right fit. This isn't right fit for us as a program, as a team, as a collective team. So sometimes changing out individual people can help. And they could be contracting people. It could be owner people. It's about trying to get the right blend. If all that fails and you still can't somehow get the team to work together, then you have to change. And, and I know that feels like you're failing when you have to do that. But as a leader, you sometimes have to take decisive action. I find that on projects, the, the bigger the project, the harder it is for people to be decisive. You, you have to take action and say, hey, this isn't working and we need to change directions. Um, you hope that it wouldn't get to that. You hope you could find ways of working together uh, before you get to that point. But sometimes that's where you go, unfortunately. So I'd love to pick up on what you just talked about of being decisive. Decision-making on projects 
is essential. I mean, you have to have a great decision-making process. You need leaders who can make decisions, tough decisions. What do you see as the biggest gap between people who were really good at making decisions and then other people who, who seem to just really don't excel at that? Yeah, a couple of things on decision-making, I think. This is a subject that's sort of near and, near and dear to my heart. One is I think as a leader, you, you want to get input on decisions. You, you want to make sure you get a, a variety of perspectives, including ones that you may not agree with. So you, you want to seek that out. I like to get people together rather than trying to do it by email. I just think that works better. Get people in a room, have a good debate. There's nothing wrong with having a... But then I think it needs to be clear that when you leave the room after the debate is over with and you've made a decision and you as the leader will have to make the decision, you can't, you know, many things you have to decide yourself. Some can make all of the decisions yourself, but certainly the ones you're making, you'll have to make the decision and say, when we leave the room, this is the decision and we're not coming back to it. I see a lot of re-debating happening uh, where you leave a room and people made a decision, but then it's somehow, well, was that really the decision or so? When you leave the room, the decision's made. And um, not everyone's going to agree, but you have to agree as a team that you're going to keep moving forward. I don't think the leader has to make, doesn't have to and shouldn't make every decision themselves. That sort of disempowers people. I think you have to decide as a leader, which decisions do I really need to make versus which decisions am I okay if somebody else makes and I just, I'm okay with that. And then they need to follow the same process, get opinions from their team. And then the other piece of that, I, that I've shared with a couple of people is um, we're trying to get better at this. Uh, Amazon has a wonderful system for this. And I read about it in a book recently. I think the name of the book is the Amazon Management System or something. They call them type one versus type two decisions. Type one decisions are strategically important decisions. When you make them, it's very hard to go back on them, to change direction at that point. Type two decisions are decisions that you can make. And if it's not working, you can make a different decision and change directions. And Amazon sort of says, as a general rule, maybe sort of around 80-20, 80% of, of most decisions you make are type two decisions. And the way that they work, which I think I, I like a lot, is type two decisions you should make quickly. I mean, you should get, get facts in front of you, make a decision and move on. Um, and don't spend a lot of time debating them. Because in the end, if it's not quite right, you can adjust as you're going along. Type one decisions are places you really have to spend a lot of time to get it right. And I, I feel like and not even just in projects, but maybe in companies in general, we treat every decision like it's a type one decision. And so we spend a lot of time just grabbing facts and studying it and analyzing and reanalyzing. When we'd be better off, I think, to just say, you know what, in the end, this is a type two decision. Let's get in the room and talk about what we know today. Uh, even if it's imperfect information, we make a decision and we move on. And you don't quagmire the whole organization in making every decision a type one decision. What brings you a lot of satisfaction when you are developing and coaching people who are on your team? I like to watch people grow, stretch themselves, even though sometimes it's a bit, you know, it's painful to watch them in the moment as they're stretching themselves. I like to watch people develop a broader view of the company than just a singular project. Company can grow in a lot of different ways. You can grow a company by buying other companies. So that's sort of an MA type strategy. You can grow organically by just getting better at manufacturing. You can become an excellent manufacturing organization and grow in that way. You can grow by doing capital projects. So you can go build new things. So the company has any company has a finite amount of money that they can go invest. And if they choose to do a capital project, I, I take that as a very humbling thing because they could choose to do something else with their money. But they're then saying, we believe enough in you and your team 
that we're going to invest you know, what our finite resources into you to go do this. And so that's a huge responsibility. And I think when that sort of clicks with people that do projects, that they sort of understand people are making this decision consciously because they believe in us. They believe we can do this. They believe that we're going to make the business better at the end of this. That's a huge responsibility and a huge honor, I think, that I don't know that everybody necessarily appreciates in projects. So when that, that starts to sort of click and they start to understand, and then they dive deeper and they understand the business reasons for projects. Why is a business doing this project versus that project? Sort of developing a broader view of why we do what we do and ultimately becoming more in tune with the needs of the business. And that brings me a tremendous amount of joy when I see that. How have you seen your own personal leadership style change over the years as you have grown yourself in your career? Yeah, that's a great one. I'd like to believe that over time, I've become a more patient leader. You know, maybe I think back to the younger version of me, I probably wasn't nearly as patient as I am today. I still am very fixated on results. I think at the end of the day, projects are still graded on did we make the budget or the schedule? Did we do it safely? Did we make a plant that works? And all those things still matter. I mean, that's still ultimately how we're judged. But I, I probably in the early days was, was very focused on results almost at any cost. And I probably have come to the point in my life where you, you realize that projects are being done by humans and that humans have to deal with a lot on any given day. And, and they come to work with, with a lot, a lot of which is never even said. And you know their own personal struggles. I remember you know, years ago, my brother had died tragically, and I, I came to work, and I just sort of was like, "Well, you know, I'll push this in a box and deal with it some other day." And I just got to keep moving forward. I remember one of the most powerful things somebody said was, "You need to take the time, and and when you're ready, we'll be ready." And it was somebody very senior, so it, it really resonated. Thought this is someone that you know is really um, taking the time to understand that things have happened and that's going to impact how I come and how I can operate as a person. So I think over the years, I've tried to be a lot more patient and understand that people sometimes are struggling with things when they come to work. And you know, if somebody's not performing as well as they could, sometimes it's, it's worth a conversation to say, hey, is there something that you want to talk about? Is there something that's you know, holding you back today or something that's really, you know, really pressing on you that maybe it'd be better for you to just take some time and work through it? Well, and I think that leads to the idea that we need to really care about the people who are on our team. I was talking to our team this week, and as I said, you know, years ago when I was in the military before I did all this, you know, we used to say, and I think it's probably as true as now as it was then, that people don't fight for generals. People fight for the person next to them. The general can get up and say whatever he or she wants, um, but in the end, that's not who you're fighting for. You're not fighting for me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm the abstract figure to you. You're really fighting for the person next to you, and you're really only going to fight for them when you understand them and know them and care about them. When, you, when you know that, hey, you know, this person's come to work today, they're struggling with a lot, but they've got a mortgage and two kids, and I need to make this a success for them as much as anybody else. That's when I think you get really good teams. That's when you get people who are going to fight. And, the, and people say, well, how do you, you know, how does a team perform well? What, you know, part of it is you've got to find a way to get that incremental effort out of the team? How do you get just one more hour or, or one more day? Or, you know, how do you stretch the just little bit extra effort goes a long way on a project, but people are not going to do that because you, you know, force them to do it. I mean, they might do it for a little while, but eventually they'll quit. 
I don't even think they're going to do it because you just necessarily pay them more. I think that probably works as a temporary thing. I think they will give you incremental effort when they believe it matters to the person next to them. That's what I think. But to do that, you have to get to a place where people know and care about each other on that level. That's when they really click as a team. And as a leader, that's when you get that extra output that you wouldn't otherwise get. And that right there, Josh, is why you are a great leader. Well, I don't know. I think the jury's still out. I would say this. I'm very much an unfinished leader. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. And the more I learn and grow, the more I know I've got a lot further to go. So I would say I'm still very much an unfinished leader, but hopefully getting better as we go. So Thank you so much, Josh, for being here today. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Sally. Be well. Remember to check out my conversation with Josh in episode two as well. If you found this episode valuable, will you take a minute to share it with another leader or team member? That would mean so much to me. It's easy to share this episode from the platform you tuned in on today. And all of the Team of a Lifetime episodes are available at sallyloveinspires.com slash podcast. And in case you didn't know, you can also subscribe to the show so that you don't miss conversations with future guests. Thank you for joining me today. I'll be back with a new episode soon. 